Hello, my name is David Turner and this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. This month I'm in North London talking to Niall O'Sullivan, poet, part-time lecturer and host of Poetry Unplugged. And we'll begin, as always, with uh, Niall. Give us an introduction to his work. Um, my work? I, I, uh, yeah, I, I should point out that I work in North, we are in North London but I live in South London. <laughs> uh, that's an important part of my work. I don't know what to say about my work because I've been doing, I've been involved in poetry for coming since 1997, so coming up to 20 years, about 18 years I think. Um, so the things I've written about and the ways that I've written have changed quite a lot. Um, at the moment, my writing seems to encompass these kind of um, square, uh, sometimes quite intense paragraphs of prose that I call prose poems, um, and. That's my writing, really, and and, and I, before that I wrote a ton of poems in Terzarima, before that I wrote a ton of sonnets, and before that I guess I was a bit more of a performance poet. Um, so my work's gone through a lot of things. I guess class comes into my work quite a lot. Um, some of my background comes into my work. At the moment, a lot of stuff I'm writing is just weird stuff that's kind of, I, I guess, quite influenced by Richard Brotigan um, and a few others, so it's quite surreal. It seems to have one foot in kind of urban reality. I, I wouldn't call it magic realist or anything like that, but it's just uh, surreal poems about eccentric things um, that sometimes have a bit of a political subtext, but not always. Yeah, thanks very much. And yeah, as Niall just said there, we're both from South London, and for some reason doing this interview on the Holloway Road, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And yeah. also, today is the first day of the 7th of May, and there is a general election happening in the there UK. Is. But when this goes out, It'll all be long forgotten, and hopefully It'll Cameron be. will have been sacrificed to the socialist gods or something, or we will have all moved to Norway. Yeah, <laughs> or we can, we can edit this, can't we? So we can yeah. say it right now, brilliant, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yes. Yeah, I was yeah. always behind them all the time. <laughs> One, three, all hail to my neocon rulers. Um, if any private businesses want to fund my poetry, um, where there will be subtle um, plugs given for your product all the time, then I'm your man. Niall is having an LED display attached to his chest as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to fear. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to try and avoid uh, talking about it as if it's not really happening, because at the moment it's not relevant to this. But uh, I think we're going to start talking about uh, Poetry Unplugged, which is an open mic night that takes place every Tuesday at the Poetry Cafe in Covent Garden in London. And uh, Niall's been hosting that for like 157 years. Yeah, or something. something like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, I don't know. There's, there's, I suppose there's a, a generation of poets that view you as uh, like some sort of Catholic priest figure. In that, <laughs> we all really feel guilty when we haven't seen you. you know, like we, really, we really should come and see you every week, but it never really pans out that way. It's, it's like the kids that visit their their old school. Yeah. You know, for a couple of couple yeah. of times and then like oh we'll, we'll be back we'll be back you don't see him again you see him on on the telly and stuff like that um, and uh, yeah so how did you get involved with poetry unplugged i used to read unplugged uh, I, I, it was the second ever poetry night i ever read at in 1997 mm. um so i did my first reading my first open mic at a place uh at riverside studios uh, um and place that was written, read, anyway, yeah, I won't go into details about that one, um, in West London, um, so I did, I did that one, and then Poetry Cafe, which I kind of I remember reading an article in The Independent, that's a magazine, that's a, you know, a newspaper that used to be a bit left-wing, and um, it, I read an article um, where they had an article, I, I shit you not, about bars where the staff were smarter, better dressed than their clientele. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them was the Poetry Cafe with this dude at the bar called Fran who always ended up on telly as a different thing every week I right. noticed this he was like a relationships expert one, one week and stuff like that and then I'm a, just yeah just he just such a blagger and there was an interview with him I went, oh Poetry Cafe so I went to Time Out and Time Out was kind of like the pages of Time Out were like the bible of the poetry scene back then like yeah. people weren't as active on the internet, there was no social media, no web 2.0 and all that, so we, um, so yeah, you'd go to time out and I just saw open mic every Tuesday, poetry cafe, mm. uh, to cut a long story short, so I, I was a patron of Unplugged for about, and a regular reader of Unplugged for about seven years, 
before um, they, they asked me, before I took over from Carl, who took over from John, the guy who started it, John Susan. So yeah, I've been hosting it for 10 years, but I've been coming to that night for much longer, 17, yeah, 18 years. Yeah. It's interesting, the point about timeout because I haven't been doing it for long enough to really know the open mic scene mm-hmm. without the aid of Google. Yeah. But I mean, that was... Um, I think the Unplugged is so well established now, I think it's the first hit if you're trying to find an open mic night yeah. in London. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people that I've spoken to and that's their first, the first place they've read. And is that not an odd experience for you, knowing that so many people have come through for the first time there? Not entirely, because it was the first place I and a lot of people yeah. that I'm contemporary with also read at. Yeah. So I'm glad it's still mm. that kind of that rite of passage for a lot of people, um, and seeing lots of names of people and just finding the old lists. It was really cool when I was at home because I, I'm finding the, a notebook because my first few lists I did the first couple of years as a host I did in different notebooks mm. before. Anyway, um, and finding Scroobius Pips poetry unplugged virgin list mm. and stuff like that and just. Um, I don't think it's strange because it's central London. It just tends to be the first hit on Google. So it's, it's the location's good, the poetry, because it's tied to the Poetry Society. So I've got a lot of things working in my favour to yeah. make sure people come through that door. I don't think it's all down to, to, to my natural charisma. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, I don't think through anyone's fault, it seems like quite an intimidating first place to read, just because it, everyone seems to know what they're doing in there when you go down there. Right, yeah. Because it was the first place that I read properly yeah. as well. Um, but once you're down there, at least the staircase seems too small to run out of again. Yeah. So once you're in, you're in, and you have to do it. You were nervous as well, weren't you? I, mean, oh, I was terrified, yeah, yeah. I was terrified yeah, when yeah. I first read there. And people who are nervous, they, um, it's really funny because they look sort of different. They look different. Yeah, yeah. Like, so someone who's really nervous, they look like they're going like, to trash the venue or something like that. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, st- I still look like I'm going to trash the venue without being nervous, but I was particularly uh, angsty on that occasion. The man from Broadmoor is still my <laughs> highest... Right. Yeah. Uh, no. What's that? Is in, uh, is it Broadmoor? I forgot my name. I forgot my name on Broadmoor. The, 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 the criminal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Prison where mm. all the serial killers. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a guy who came to Unplugged. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. He, um, he turned up and I just he, he turned up to sign up and I just noticed this just intensity mm. about the man right away. I was like. It's kind of like a shark going through, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. and the fish are just getting the fuck out of the way. <laughs> and it was just like that. It was just like this bug might like they stepped into my personal bubble, and I just felt <laughs> I just wanted to swim away. And um, so I said, "Oh yeah, okay." First time, yeah, oh, great, yeah. Introduced him as a poetry on Black Virgin and all that. Then he gets up on stage, and I remember he first just goes, "I just got let out Broadmoor for a crime I didn't commit." <laughs> and my brain immediately knew. That you don't get let out of Broadmoor for crimes you don't commit. You're in there because you're criminally insane. It's yes, got nothing to yeah, do with nothing, no, no, no. what you did or didn't do. Yeah. Like you could be found innocent, but then they could find out yeah. along the pathway that you're a very dangerous mm. person and you'll go away there. So he's there and he, so he's reading his poems and everyone is just like, okay, this will be over in five minutes. <laughs> and that's what about his poetry at the same time, I've got to say, it was a real doorway into another world. Nothing, yeah, that's yeah. what Unplugged gives us more than all that T.S. Eliot prize bollocks and all that yes, kind of yeah. stuff and, and, the, and, the, and the kind of nice, tidy sort of spoken word even that kind mm. of like finds its way this raw kind of intense scary other world stuff normally you find open mics or kind of little presses and stuff so he's reading his work and everyone's a bit like this guy's this dude's scary but it'll be over soon and then I remember he just does one line of a poem and he says um, first line of the poem is I fuck children and I don't care oh. <laughs> right so everyone there's the silence is full of everyone in this room going alright I feel I have to intervene now I feel I have to say something I'm probably going to get a table stuck into my head Mm. but I'm going to stand up now and and you can see everyone stealing themselves to go enough okay and then other people who are just doing the whole no backbone thing or whatever and the next line of a poem was was written on the cell wall and everyone went (laughs) (laughs) I don't have to become a martyr yeah (laughs) exactly anyway that's a long story short but yeah so what can I say all people come to it because it's very visible it's very high profile it's been running for such a long time it has its own momentum Mm. so yeah I think think that's more I mean I'm glad I've been part of that for, for 10 years April it's my 10 years as a host yeah um, but yeah I'm glad I've been part of that and I'm glad it's nice to see so and to be in a position to also help people along their way to, to if they're not going to read it you know if they're not going to read it on plug for every week of their life it's nice to point them in different directions yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah I was like going to say because it's quite it is a quite a nice entry point even if you just read maybe for three or four weeks in a row and then go off and find other nights yeah. that are closer to where you live or they suit 
your yeah. sort of uh, friendship circle a bit better or something yeah. like that. But it is a really good entry point. But yeah. do you, I mean, do you think that hosts of other poetry nights should be encouraging performers to push themselves or raise their game a little bit? Would have been a lot. Um, yeah, I, 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 there's varying degrees. So I think unplugged is very much there's a friendly pressure to people that I apply, which I try to keep the vibe up, yes, and then yeah. I try to kind of invite people to also keep that vibe up. But um, and I don't necessarily say I encourage people to kind of up their game and stuff like that. Um, when Slam was invented by Mark Smith, that was very much about getting people to up their yeah. game. It was giving the audience scorecards. It was Spirit of Rome in the mm. 80s. And he just felt that the open mic was too self-indulgent and he wanted people to basically, he wanted a real dialogue between the audience and the performer. Um, I, I feel two ways. I remember when Poetry Unplugged, when, it, when I used to go there, it was like we were, we were deep into the performance poetry era, as yes, I yeah. controversially coined it <laughs> in my blogs. And uh, so sort of late 90s, early noughties, like sort of, um, and, um, and I remember it was people just, it was all about performance. Yes, they were quite pagey poets, as we like to call it, but there were loads of performers literally doing their greatest hits every yeah, week, yeah. honing their... They had five poems, and it was all about getting those poems, sometimes developing the performance. MC, it was like their rehearsal spot for it. And, um, and also, actually, there's a lot of people, a lot of actors, because back then um, you could still get an equity card um, based on poetry performances right. and gigs and stuff. So a lot of hams. Yeah. I was thinking, because not that, not that I believe that Poetry Unplugged should change, and I, I put Poetry Unplugged in the same sort of small group as maybe Spoken Word London, where they're nights where newcomers are welcome, and yeah. people are really welcome to come and just try new stuff out, and there's no real pressure um, to perform as such. And I mean perform as as in being any good. You yeah. can just come and try something out. But I wanted to go on later to discuss maybe the need for more critical discussion and reviewing of spoken word oh, and whether there should be a different, you know, there should some of the other nights, if we talk more sort of specifically about London just for the moment without mm. sounding too London-centric, but, you know. Yeah. Um, if some of the other nights should be trying to provide a platform where people come and raise their game a little rather than just being supportive as Unplugged rightly does you know. I, I always say if poets ask me for advice I do that whole line that I was given by Jem Rolls many years ago who's a guy who's thrown a night called Big Word and um, he told me to read every toilet in Soho and so I, I read all these places where you know the audience were hostile and stuff like that and you know there are I don't know if there still are places where the audience are hostile but I definitely read a few places with audiences that would turn yeah. and I had audiences turn on me I never gave a fuck when they did um, but it's just, um, but it helped me a lot as yeah. a performer, and it helped me to kind of develop presence and stuff like that, and focus and intensity, and and also sort of charm and stuff like that. I mean, there's a place the Foundry used to have an open mic there, run by Vista Spoon, who did great work. Um, but I thought there were a lot of wankers reading, uh, not just reading, we're not reading, but, but in the audience, mm. these entitled pricks who kind of thought that they were you know, I don't know, just this, the mob, I guess, but they weren't. They were like the people that were displaced, the first wave of people displacing people from the East End. And um, so I remember one time I actually got them on my side with my poem and they were like, hey, hey, like at the end of it. Yeah. After they all you can do, hey, 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 and I just, I just remember some doing a poem and I went, you know, yeah, and you can all fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that felt great yeah, to yeah, get them yeah. on my side and then just basically just give them the finger yeah, yeah. and just go, I don't like you, you're scum. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, so yeah, I don't know, that's, that's how that worked for me. I don't know, I wouldn't recommend that to everyone, but yes, I think we should be trying more stuff out and we should have a bit more, I think we should have varying degrees. Nights like Unplugged are, pop, are, are important because it's about people finding their feet and stuff like that. I don't want this to be the night where someone performs and then never performs again. Yes. But I think the audience maybe should sometimes be a bit more vocal about what they like and don't like. I think there's reasonably civil ways of doing that. And I think, yes, as, as we'll probably talk about later, um, there, there really is a role for kind of informed criticism, informed, honest criticism. Yeah. And But, yeah. Um, Actually, I'll tell you what, why don't we take a poem and then we can get on to talking about that, perhaps. Okay, so let's go with something relatively topical, shall we? Um, this poem is called Interglacial. It was in the Morning Star about maybe a year ago, maybe. Um, but there always seems to be an election, so it always seems <laughs> to be relevant. 
25 degrees C, straw tip for and smell of sun cream makes me feel like I'm on holiday. Daughter gets the factor 50 despite her Filipino DNA. When the ice sheet barred the path north of what is now condemned to be Watford, human footfall pattered the turf of Doggerland. Mutations filled with fruit, dry pallid skin to add vitamin D from dimming doses of sun. The Welsh geneticist Steve Jones said that if a Cro-Magnon sat next to you on a train, you'd probably change seats. If a Neanderthal sat next to you on a train, you'd probably go to another train. If a Romanian sat next to Nigel Farage on a train, then the Romanian would have grounds to feel uncomfortable. They dredged up hippo bones from the banks of the Thames. The Romans, the Normans, Jimi Hendrix and that lone doomed whale were all drawn to take part in this riverside sprawl. My parents came from Ireland with 17 pounds between them. If you vote UKIP today, you need to stay the fuck out of my life. <laughs> I'm most impressed that you uh, referenced that whale. <laughs> <laughs> we all remember the whale, people, don't people, we? Yeah, we should never forget. Yeah. <laughs> I love how my Irish relatives, they talk about there's a dolphin, I don't know if he's still about, but in, if you went to Dingle, there's a dolphin that would visit the boat. Mm. And everyone like called her uh, Fungi. <laughs> and I just remember my uncle just referring to him as that fucking demented dolphin. <laughs> you know, just like, oh, did he has my own people's accent? But it's just like, that fucking demented dolphin. You know, it's just like, just, 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 that's, I love that kind of thing. So yeah, just like, like we we're all kind of very tragic about that whale. We all really mourned it. But I, I put something in my head, it's like an uncle just going, that fucking demented whale. Mm. You know? <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> he's now at the Bones are in the Museum of London now, aren't they, or something? I hear. Oh, there should be more of an honour. They should be on the uh, plinth in Trafalgar Square. Yeah, That's where not? they should be. No, yeah. no more of this art bollocks. Just exactly. put the whale up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a, we'll just stick for the moment talking about the spoken word scene in the UK and mm -hmm. um, this idea of having more criticism. But do you, do you have any ideas of how you feel the scene should develop or which direction it should take? Or do you, do you think there should be any particular changes to the way it's run? Um, I'd, for, I think I'd start with a disclaimer that no one, if it's a kind of a young scene, then no one needs to give a shit about what a bitter old fart like me thinks it should have, that should happen. Um, I'm very much from a sort of, my, my kind of, my, I guess my peak, my, one of my peaks came when, when there was a real kind of, what I called the death of performance poetry. Mm. And all I meant of that, I didn't mean like, you know, it's still like the death of punk, of course there's still punk, of course there's, of course people still paint like impressionist painters and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. You know, not that anything's, when, when we really speak like that, it's a very dramatic way that gets a few more mm. hits of naming it, maybe slightly inaccurate, but um, it means that a lot of the innovation of that particular thing, a lot of the stylistic breadth kind of got developed in that particular time and people still use it but it's kind of, it belongs to a kind of certain historical era. Um, so when performance poetry, like, it basically meant that a lot of performance poets, people from that generation were either getting straight jobs or they had children or whatever, that kind of thing were vanishing from the scene. It felt like a generational shift was happening. And at the same time, um, a lot of other poets who had got older, so like everyone, patients like Barbie, Tim Turnbull, um, even Tim Wells, I mean, he'd hate to be called a performance poet, but it's just like, <laughs> he's, it, he's still tight up here. He's a performance poet with his lardy dar flouncy, jump about the stage and say, telling us all war is bad. I'm fed up of him. He's yeah, such a hippie. He's such a hippie. But just, um, so there's these poets that were kind of, but now they're published, you know what I mean? They're, yes. they're, 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 they've, been, they've been nominated for literary awards. And so, you know, Patience Like Barbie was, was nominated for the Ted Hughes Prize. She's one of the next generation poets. Um, Tim Turnbull um, has been nominated for the Ford Prize a couple of times. So they crossed into that literary sphere. So, and then like kind of spoken word as a generation of younger poets, very much like the page stage divide in some, in a lot of ways, it was kind of meaningful, it was quite dead. Mm. Not meaning that there wasn't still stuff where we could look at one side and go, that's performance and yeah. that's literary. But it was just that the blurring line the line of division was very fuzzy, and I think it's a bit less fuzzy today. I think there's more of a page stage divide again. Um, I still think there are people that cross over, mm. but not as excitingly and as often as they were in that kind of okay. early to mid noughties period. Um, so anyway, yeah, spoken word today. I don't know, what would I say about where, where would I like it to go? I think 95% of the spoken word poems I hear would be better if they were a minute longer. I mean, a minute shorter, not a minute <laughs> longer. <laughs> Bloody hell, stop me there. <laughs> Do not take that to heart, young children. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. That need to be longer. It's like saying that like, yes. I through enough yeah, that track of that yes album needs to be longer. Um, no, and, and I mean that metaphor. I find that a lot of them, they, they kind of, I, they bring out a compelling image. They have some wonderful lines and then, um, and then they kind of tend to have, there's like this need to, then the, near the end, it carries on, you're thinking, you've made your point really. 
Um, then the cliches creep in, and then um, they seem to end it on some big epiphany. You know, like they seem to kind of like it has, it has to be tied has, up at the it has end. Has to be a goal to it or something, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And so, in some ways, you could say it's very traditional public rhetoric. Yeah. Speech making. There's nothing wrong with that. It, you can't kill that. That's always going to be a part of the human verbal kind of life. You know. Do you think that's a natural sort of uh, result of there being s such a uh, a large amount of sort of prose poetry, and people feel the need to end the story? Because it's, you, you, even if it's sort of in verse or form, people still tend to end this. Maybe it's just because it's become a fashion, I don't know, but it's, they have to wrap it up somehow. I find prose poetry to be very economical, actually. I think I find okay. prose poetry to, a lot of prose poetry to be the opposite. It's normally a, a paragraph which kind of is very concise. Um, they, and most po prose poems don't last longer than a minute to read, right. I find. I mean, I could be wrong, that's, that's a very big field. A mind off It's just a poem with no line breaks, yeah. that's all. Um, so, but I find that a lot of prose poetry I do hear, like Claudia Rankine's like latest sort of work, Citizen, um, which huge book, which Penguin are going to you know re relaunch their poetry off the back of. But um, it's like I think there's a lot of economy, and I don't think there's a lot of that economy in a lot of spoken word stuff. I find that it kind of yes, it has to do that big ending, wrapping yeah, up yeah. With the big moral message, mm -hmm. and sometimes actually the really compelling stuff is happening in the situation that they're relating. I see, I see, what, I see what you mean. Maybe yeah. it's more to do with slam influence then because you're trying to get a direct message across in order to get points from you know yeah. you need to be fully understood yeah you know a, a sort of con yeah concise prose poem it doesn't really go anywhere yeah. it's not I, as I mean, likely to go spineless here as well by not giving any proper examples you know what i mean so it's just but, but i don't want to hurt people's feet no 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 that's yeah. and this is not yeah. this is not i don't mean to talk about and this yeah this is really the point of what we're going to come on to discuss now yeah is how you can discuss and critique poetry without right. destroying people because it's not actually about that yeah. it's not about ripping people to pieces it's about having a system in place where we can say well that isn't this certain style or these particular fashions aren't really working mm. you know well, you don't have and to and it's be just my taste maybe there's a whole audiences that probably really like no it's absolutely yeah, the disclaimer that, that you made that you yeah. don't believe your opinion is that <laughs> relative. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not making a podcast because I think my opinion yeah, is yeah, that relative yeah. I just think that people need to talk about it and hopefully this starts a discussion this is not a definitive answer about yeah. anything because you and I both know fuck all about anything yeah. no we both admit and, that and one of these guys <laughs> that we criticise could just turn around and go well here's my Here's my ten thousand thumbs up on YouTube. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, and there's your and there's your little word of criticism. Or they could look at my poetry, and then yeah. we'd all be fucked. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I mean, there's there's that. So you know, that seems to be working. In that if that's what people are after, if they're after kind of thumbs up and all that, that's fine. Um, Correct. What, 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 sorry, I've just veered us off the, um, off the off the. So you're talking about criticism and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mean sabotage reviews is a kind of a criticism thing. Actually, you know what, before, another disclaimer, there's nothing wrong with a hatchet job. Yep, no, no. In fact, poetry needs more of them. Mm. And I think, before I say anything about lack of criticism in, um, oh, is there someone about walking, that's his classroom, he's shaking his head and walking out, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, that'll make no sense to your listeners. There, there was a man looking through a window. Yeah, and we are kind of someone who's booked into this classroom, and we call that they maybe aren't having yeah. a class or something. So anyway, um, yeah, what was I saying? Criticism. But did you want to talk about reviewing first? Reviewing. Well, it's the same. Yeah, reviewing. Because I don't actually. I don't. We can get on to yeah. discuss why I don't believe they're the same thing. But we. we okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Reviewing. I think that. But any problems I point out about spoken word and live poetry reviewing are already existent in literary poetry. Mm. Um, so the Guardian have their horrible little guffy pieces where they kind of review a collection and, and say bold and stuff like that, have one mild line of dissent about three quarters of the way through <laughs> the interview. And it's all very done in this kind of this atmosphere of it's good for poetry. Yeah, yeah. We're helping preserve this precious specimen and we're keeping it from dying. Mm. Um, that's the mindset. I find that same mindset has been in a lot of um, poetry. I think poetry, well, there's not been any spoken word review, not a lot. I find sabotage reviews, sort of, um, some of the stuff I've read of theirs, um, seems to be a bit too. I think. I think the problem seems to be the reviewers are mates with people that they're reviewing for yes, a start. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people sort of like like a bunch of four star and five star. They're editor shows for people they know. 
Um, God, I'm being quite honest here. Um, do 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 uh, sabotage is a great thing. From Claire Trevian is amazing. I think she's doing a brilliant thing. I think their spoken word reviewing. I've not been massively impressed by. No, I, I haven't. It's. I, I don't think it's a very good standard. I completely agree. It does seem like friends talking about friends. Yeah, and search for the word. Do do a search in the word heartfelt. <laughs> it turns up in every review. <laughs> well, not every, but a lot. Yeah. Heartfelt. What what does that mean? No, yeah, what does yeah, that tell yeah, me yeah. about a piece saying it's heartfelt? It's mm. bollocks. Yeah, so, but just, so yeah, but heartfelt, oh my God. Um, and I just felt also that there seems to be a lack of kind of, um, a lack of engagement with the kind of history of spoken word. It's very, it's a bit too narrow. It's a bit too, I've been part of this scene, I know this person, this person, this mm -hmm. person. They're not looking further back. I think that's why what Tim Wells is doing with Stand Up and Spit is so important in a way yeah. of kind of bringing up more history. So that the more history we learn about spoken word, and it's not the reviewer's fault, it's a lot of oral art forms don't get recorded. A lot of things which are kind of underground art forms or things that folk movements, I should mm. say, rather than academic movements, they don't necessarily get recorded. So it's very hard to have that sense of history. And it's, I, I it annoys me that so many reviews are, in actual fact, adverts for shows. They're, yeah. not, they're not reviews. They're just, they, they tell you when and where it was on. They tell you a bit about the form of the show. Mm -hmm. But there's no... Which you're absolutely right, and my my biggest problem with it is um, being quite interested in reading uh, art, fine art review mm -hmm. papers. They all you ha you cannot write an art review really without referencing something that's come before because you have to put it into context, you know, because yeah. that's the form that exists within the fine art world, and it's definitely something that's missing in uh, in sp a spoken word review. Yeah, and yeah. if you do miss out that context, then you have to really go into much more detail into something else you know you have to if you're only going to talk about the moment yeah you have to talk about it properly not falling back onto cliche i mean i know that yeah. you know if you're trying to write three or four reviews in a month or something and have a full-time job you know it's easy to fall back on these things but then you shouldn't be writing the reviews you know if you're finding yeah. yourself unable to it's write about that you know the worst the best reviewer is an outsider yeah and i mean people always do that old reviews oh they're the people that can't do it well they sh in some ways they should be the people that can't do it they should be the people that, that they don't have to be able to do it they should be the people that know how someone they should know about the history of it and they should know what it's like for someone who doesn't who hasn't experienced this thing what it could be like for them to experience mm. it um and uh, and I think the idea of an outsider that isn't afraid afraid of burning bridges. Yes. And yeah. is very important. And I think the problem is is our scene so small. There's no such thing as an outsider. What an outsider be? They would be so shunned. And I mean, there is that kind of thing where I've done it myself. Like that Nathan A. Thompson wrote. He, everyone was like, "Who's this bloke? Yeah. Never heard of him." And um, he, he he did his critique of Slam, mm. which wasn't great. He, he kind of anyone who uses the line like this poem, I've heard it quite a lot. This poem's like a fine wine. You know, no. so we enjoy like a fine wine. That's like one that's that far away from saying like you're writing a poem, it's like making love to a beautiful woman. You know, really, it's just so just, just so there's that. But I'd, it's love, just, I'd but, love Swiss Tony to review some of my poetry. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we all kind of grabbed our pitchforks and torches and kind of went after him. Mm. And so, there is that. I mean, someone wrote a very unkind review of poetry unplugged. I felt it was unkind because why are you reviewing poetry unplugged? It's an open yeah, mind. Yeah. Um, it's not actually at, uh, at Lunar Poetry we never review um, open mics yeah. so if we go to events we only go to review the features and if there are features and open mics we'll only mention one or two open mics unless, if they've been outstanding and are worthy yeah. of comment because an open mic slot is not there to, for, to be reviewed That's yeah. not. What, I think you can write a review about what the venue's like and how welcoming the whole event is you can write a review about the event but not the people reading I think that's unfair when it's open mic it's really unfair yeah. most people haven't come there to kind of like if some of those people might be kind of having their struggles with open mic their struggles imagine like doing your first open mic and the, the battle it is maybe to kind of just get up there yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and there are some people that also have had a previous crisis of confidence that go to an open mic so to actually write a review of that person without knowing why they're there or whether they've been booked I think is, is out of order yeah yeah and um, so going back to the idea of criticism, the reason I believe there's a difference because, I've, you know, reviewing, I believe, is there as a, a record of particular events. Uh -huh. You can, obviously, there are elements of criticism, criticism in good reviews, uh -huh. but a critical paper as such about the open mic scene or a particular style of poetry or spoken uh -huh. word is never going to be a review. So that, I believe that, that way of thinking stands alone. Yeah. I just, I was just wondering why there isn't more of that 
regarding spoken word. Um, criticism. Yeah. Oh, There's, yeah, there is some... Critical I mean, theory, I mean, that's... Critical yeah, theory. Yeah. yeah, some of it's been quite bad as well. Yeah. Some people have kind of like... It's a bit of a gravy-trained PhD. It's like... <laughs> So there's been like stuff people, there have been some people that have had a bit of prominence and had articles published in the Poetry Review and stuff like that about performance poetry and they've come up with some weird kind of, what I find that I don't really recognise, they've kind of done these weird, these lazy genealogies like where it kind of like, oh it started with the beats, then it went to the black art movement, then it hopped over to the dub poets and then it hopped over... Um, during the 80s to Benjamin Zephyr and there's kind of like that whole ignoring of the stuff like that Tim's kind yes, of showing yeah, everyone yeah, now yeah. and uh, uh, basically for a research thing you find out they've not done a lot of research mm. um, and and so I, but I have there's a good book called by Julia Novak which is more a guide actually I'd say if anyone's going to review poetry live poetry they should read a book called Live Poetry and Integrated Approach by Julia Novak I use it with my students here um, and it's just very thorough in kind of how it defines poetry and performance and also how you could review it yes or how you could communicate through critical basically actually to build up a critical language and a critical mm. approach for that and i think anyone who's interested in it should it's about 18 quid or something like that but and see that this is i think was my actually you put that better than i did the, the idea that i believe where the difference between criticism and reviewing is that the, the critical language that i need that you need yeah. in order to write critically about the art form mm -hmm. is probably inappropriate for reviewing because your that kind of language might be uh, unapproachable for people that haven't ever seen a spoken word show. You know, but, it, but if you're writing more critical theory, then you do need that language. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to me. I mean, I may not have found it yet, but it doesn't seem to me that it does exist. Mm -hmm. well, it's not definitely not that deep yeah, rooted. Yeah, we, you we know. haven't got that, and that's so that's. But maybe that's why it's kind of unfair for me to kind of like. Um, point my finger at the young, these young people who have stuck their neck at, necks out a bit to start writing critical reviews of spoken word stuff but there's certainly an idea that where's the framework mm. that we can use and you could say that a lot of other genres and literary things they, they, they have their um, they have well entrenched kind of critical approaches but still you have warring critical approaches you have stuff like the new criticism mm. but in a lot of ways um, it's not that new now it's about 100 years old but it's still <laughs> but it's got a lot of ways it really affected literature, that school of criticism. So that when performance came back to the fore, um, it was really interesting that the new criticism addressed nothing about that. Mm. It was very much about confronting a text without the um, outside reference of the life of the poets or stuff like that. It was literally, you, you can confront the text on its own in isolation and you have all the critical tools to deal with that. That's basically the approach. Like, you know, it stands and falls by its, literally, how it stands to text on its own, yes, which yeah, yeah. I think is ridiculous. <laughs> but that, that, I think that just bears about four seconds of kind of serious examination mm. before it falls apart. It, it shows, you know, white men from a certain background, of course, came up with that, completely oblivious to the background, you know, their, their yeah. privilege and, yeah. and how what they see as neutral is actually something that's very, very particular to their culture. Mm. Um, so, life poetry, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think there are kind of ways in which you can address, I make these little, when I send my students out to poetry nights, I have these little checklists and it's like, it's everything about the, the venue, what's the standing, the literary standing of the poet themselves, mm. it's the biographical aspect of the poet. Um, I, one piece I show my students quite a lot is Skinhead by, 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 by Patricia Smith um, from Deaf Poetry Jam. Which I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Death Poetry Jams, this show, <laughs> but um, I find this a bit too worthy. Yeah. And um, it's one of those attempts to film poetry. Whenever they film poetry, they always overdrill the audience. Like the audience, of course, the audience are always part of the performance, mm. but they're saying, okay, you must all make tons of noise here and overreact in so many ways because it's good for poetry. <laughs> they always say that line. Yeah. But, um, but, the, but, so, but Patricia Smith's performance of Skinhead is amazing because it's a poem about, it's all basically about a fascist thug. He's lost his fingers in an industrial accident. He now goes out, he got laid off, he goes out and basically in, inflicts despicable acts of violence on people of ethnic persuasions and gay people and so on. And it's about the anger. But, and the whole poem is told from the vantage point of it. But of course, the thing that performance changes about this poem is it's a black, it's an African American yes, yeah, woman yeah, yeah. performing this character. And that's kind of what works about it. That's not only, it's not only the contradictions contained therein, but the depth that, that it lends to it. Um, it's not that it's a, a hollow husk. If you read that in isolation, if I, I, don't, I don't really do this, but if I gave that 
I think I tried it once and then I thought, I won't do that again. Where I gave the text to my students, I say, I'm going to show you the performance, read this, don't immediately jump to any conclusions. You might, there's a trigger warning. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> don't do that again. It, it went quite well, but I thought, actually, that could have gone really wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the poem itself, you look at it and you think, oh my God, who wrote this? And then you see a black woman performing it and it makes sense. Hmm. Um, Taylor Marley did a performance of that poem in the voice of Patricia Smith performing it to an audience that included Patricia Smith and uh, by all accounts it didn't go down very well and that the only person in the audience smiling and laughing was Patricia Smith more in this what is this stupid white boy doing type way <laughs> but um and it's kind of maybe naive of him to someone who excels at performance to not understand that yeah, performative yeah. aspect so that's just one example of how actually performance is really important and how and actually once you're sensitive to things like that and then you watch literary poets performing and you see what is kind of what, what the bedrock of the performance is there, what ideological things are presented by how everything from like, you know, the 20 minute introduction by the dean mm. of the university who talks about how important this poet is and reads out the name of everything they've published mm. ever and then brings on the person who's going to introduce the poet, that kind of thing. <laughs> and there's this big old, that's all ceremony, that's all performance, that all, yeah. that ritual kind of helps hold up that literary facade, the importance, that, that, I mean, the thing that they're trying to perform there is the importance of what is happening and the importance of this poet who is visiting us. And then even like the poetry voice, the <laughs> lectern, and when people read their poems like this, and it's because it's very important now, and I cannot inject any emotion into it because this is heightened speech. And actually, when you listen to Yeats and you listen to some of the other guys, they're very much into the idea of poetry as heightened speech. And it sounds kind of hammy. Mm. So, you know, let me go to Innistri. They all sound Scottish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, no matter where they're from. And even Basil Bunting's reading of Brig Flats. But I kind of, once you get an ear for that, it's quite good. And you realise what, what they're presenting in that performance is the idea of one poetry between something between speech and song has a music to yes, it. Yeah. They're presenting that idea, and you know, like I think Yates somewhere said that um, a poem should not be read in the way that you talk to someone across a breakfast table. We should recognise in our performance mm. that it is a thing that is magical and cantatory, I yes. and, um, and it's interesting that now the kind of dominant way of performing a lot of stuff is in a conversational sense. Um, so, what are we saying when we perform in that way? What are we saying? You know, we say we make an ideological statement that poetry, that conversation, there is no line between poetry and conversation. That there is, you know, so. Unfortunately, I think that people aren't thinking about that. Maybe not. Yeah, but them, they're you assuming know, it. You know, but yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe without realizing it. Then, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, maybe we should have another poem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I went off on one there. So okay. caffeine is kicking in. <laughs> also, I'm in a lecture room, so this was going to happen. <laughs> I was going to start lecturing yeah. at some point. I feel like I'm going to have my notes checked at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, can you just like pretend to look like you're on Facebook? There's something I imagine if I read this poem, which is kind of about, I guess it's about my previous life, or part of my previous life. Um, uh, my, my stepdad's a lecturer. And I remember him giving me advice, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll get a pointer and then stand at the back of the classroom while you deliver your lecture. And then everyone who's on Facebook kind yeah, of has yeah, to yeah. change, shut down their page. I was like, oh, good advice. Anyway, this is a poem about how, um, about how street I am, about how much of a tough blue collar man, a demotic man of the people that I am, and how you just shouldn't mess with me really. Because even though I write poetry, I'm not some softy. You know, like a lot of male poets do that. There's, it seems that the whole subtext of their thing is like, I write poetry, but this poem's called I'll smash your face in with a, with a brick. <laughs> anyway, well, sorry. This poem is called Shanked on a Clear Winter's Day. When I was 21 years old, I stabbed myself in the leg with a pair of sacketeers while doing a Jackie Chan jump off the back of a transit van. I was working as a gardener at a theme park at the time. I can't tell you what theme park it was, I can only tell you that everything there was made out of Lego. It happened at the top of a hill that overlooked a vista that revealed the London eye in the distance on a clear day. From a certain vantage point it would have looked like a painting by Gainsborough called Gardner stabs himself in the leg with a set of sacketeers while doing a Jackie Chan jump off the back of a transit van. The service roads used to be routes in the old safari park. The concrete tracks I rode over on a quad bike were once lorded over by elephants, wolves, lions, tigers and bears. In the years that I worked there I saw foxes, adders, muntjac, deer and a hare. One morning a weasel stared at me from inside a tree feeder pipe and wouldn't back down. 
I didn't know that I'd stabbed myself until about half an hour had passed. There was a hole in my waterproof bottoms that led to the hole in my trousers, that led to the hole in my long johns, that led to the hole in my leg. The blades were open and sticking out of the bottom of my body warmer pocket when I made the jump. They glued the wound shut at the minor injury unit. It's just a slightly textured skin ripple now, soon to disappear forever. I'll miss it. <laughs> Thank you. True story. It might it might seem too too far fetched, but yeah, I like to say that you know people talk about crime and like racist kind of like you know people have racist theories of crime. Well, it's all these people. I always say, yeah. Well, one time I was stabbed by a by a white man. <laughs> my own class he jumped me yeah <laughs> literally jumped me I, you know, I, I was shanked by one of my own people so you know I can't point that finger up but other ethnicities for being more involved in crime anyway, yeah. so when you uh, when you had the job as a Jackie Chan impersonating Gardner yeah um, we, you were writing poetry at that time, were you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was writing and performing it I, yeah. I, I had about four or five years at the theme park and then I was, I mean, I worked for about sort of five, six years for the council mm. um, in sort of West London. Yeah. And um, so I was writing poetry. Yeah, I kind of left art school and um, I kind of realised, I, I don't know, I just realised I wasn't going to be like doing paintings. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I realised that, that I wasn't going that way. I was much more into my writing. I wrote quite a lot. And then within about nine months, really, I kind of did my first open mic. Mm. Um, I remember this, I got encouraged to do it by this um, white Zimbabwean guy that I worked with. He just everything was a sexual metaphor to him. <laughs> and so I just remember him sort of noticing me reading all my Henry Miller books at the time and stuff like that, as, as, as young men are wont to do. And I, um, and I just remember him turning around to me and just sort of saying, Mate, you've already popped a cherry, now it's time to go out and give them multiples. <laughs> Everything was this sick, depraved, but for some sick, depraved reason, that was the motivation I needed to get on a train and stand up in front of a room of people that I assumed would be like all like my old English teacher yeah. and read my poems and risk them going, that's not a poem. <laughs> that, 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 everyone's idea of what will happen in their first open mic half the time. So yeah. did, did, you talk, uh, did you tell your co-workers at the time that you were writing or...? They kind of found out eventually, but yeah. I had a good eight years. Yeah. <laughs> of uh, some found out, some came like actually some used to come, one or two used to come to the nights, but I would try and keep it kind of secret um, and have my secret little notebook that I had. Yeah, kind of like Fred Voss, the um, Long Beach machinist. Mm. I think he's finally retired. Didn't really ever tell the guys that he wrote poetry and like yeah. you know uh, his books. You know his books selling okay in Europe and that kind of thing. But there he's in America working with these machinists. Um, they knew I was different at the same time. You know, they kind of treat, as soon as you have any kind of lardy dar leanings yeah, yeah. and they find out about that, then you're, yeah. you're like little Lord Fauntleroy walking into that yard. Um, and they found out in the end, they found out I, my, my first, I was still working as a gardener when my first collection was published. Um, my last day, I remember this, I was streaming. Um, I was streaming around the playground in Acton and for the first time in my entire career as a gardener, um, I hit dog shit with a streamer. <laughs> And it went face yeah. inside my mouth. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember stood there turning off my streamer. I'd already given like a sort of mumps notice, yeah. but it was two weeks into that notice, and because uh, I was I was going on a tour with apples and snakes. What's Danny Glover's character name from Die Hard? He's always getting shot two weeks before assignment. Then. Oh no, no, no! You mean a uh, no, no, but lethal, lethal weapon. weapon? Sorry, not Die Hard. <laughs> yes. um, sorry for that. You know what? I've forgotten the names of them myself. Yeah, yeah. It's because we know it's just Danny Glover. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But yeah, it's me always like nearly retiring. Yeah, and like there's that. a bomb under the toilet. Or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's one of those things where I just like that's what the, that's what the last straw tastes like, and I and I left. <laughs> but a lot of my my earlier work is about that blue collar life, actually, yeah. and writing about my experiences. And if I hadn't read people like Fred Voss or even Charles Bukowski, I would never have known that that was that was good material for poetry. You know, so it was it was really good to kind of have. At least some influences. I spoke to Helen Moore a little bit about mm. this when we did podcasts with her, but for slightly different different reasons. But do you feel is guilt too strong a word for the reasons that you would have kept writing about working class issues and and because there's just there seems to be this idea that if you you know if you you come from that sort of blue collar working mm. background or working class family, yeah. It's it's hard enough to tell your parents, you know, I might want to study art or I might want to yeah, be a writer yeah. or anything. 
but then to actually move into it properly, you know, and... Yeah, I was really lucky with my parents because they were always really supportive um, of what I... I mean, my mum just wanted to kind of get into the middle class as quickly as possible. Um, my dad was a fireman, many became uh, a failed businessman, mm. <laughs> sort of thing. But he, um, but he, but you know, but then he, even he kind of went up. He started off working in um, I think Earls Court Road Fire Station um, in, um, in when he came over. But within about ten years, he was um, he was in fire security at, Har at Harrods. Okay. So they had a little fire department there. Mm. He may end up being an odd job man for like Mohammed Al Fayed quite a lot, <laughs> and he used to see Dodi sneaking out the back when he was grounded. Yes, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. But anyway, um, so yeah, my family kind of had that. That, that I, I guess there were aspirations anyway. But what I liked about like my parents is they would always be very supportive. They wouldn't. They would never kind of do what I do with my daughter. It's like I want that toy. Okay, I'm buying it for you right now. Mm. You know that kind of thing. She makes a modest, elaborate gesture. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they wouldn't do that for, for, for us if we showed an aptitude for something they would get behind us. So if I started doing loads of drawings, then they'd go out and buy a bunch of felt tip pens or yeah. whatever and come back with stuff for that. If I kind of showed that I wanted to act, they'd quickly chuck me in like in a little remedial, I don't know, some little drama class or something. But it was never, you know, if there was some big flashy thing I wanted, they'd never buy that for me. But if we showed any kind of attitude, I thought it was really good parenting anyway, for a certain thing, they would get behind us. Mm. So I was really lucky to not be the traitor of the family in that sense. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it was a similar story with Helen where she was definitely supported by her parents yeah. to take the academic route and go to Cambridge and study uh, psychology yeah. but the social pressure still remained on her because she came from that background yeah. you know there wasn't any direct pressure from her parents as such yeah. and it's just interesting because you made that uh, point earlier about some poets getting up and just being really masculine because mm -hmm. they write poetry they have to be yeah. and it's just this idea and I don't know some people it's either masculine talk about men mainly because yeah. men are idiots right yeah. and it's like these ideas of work, being working class and trying to remain masculine because I suppose most of these traditional challenges no longer exist in our lives you know yeah. our lives are very comfortable yeah. we're all in this country the majority of people are what would have been middle class yeah. before I can't be as working class as my parents it's impossible yeah. we all luckily earn too much money education is better and so, but, so at the same time our parents were kind of like more able to buy property there are challenges yeah, yeah. of course now I'm not saying it's um, some it's utopia but it's just I just mean I can't be working class in the same way I could be working class in a different way which is I'll ne probably never own my own home yeah um, I'll never have a car and I guess we're all working class exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no it's just uh, just no, it's more whether you felt like a train. Maybe some subconsciously you felt under pressure to keep, not keep writing about that. As if I don't mean it's as if you only wrote about those themes. But do you did you feel drawn to it? I think yeah. I think you know what I didn't. By there are so many things I didn't realise were class yeah. issues. Yeah. Stuff like I went to a grammar school. See, I'm getting more and more middle class all the time because <laughs> I passed a stupid exam, which meant I didn't go to the thing that meant mm -hmm. I was going to be like you know having five kids by the time I was sixteen and yeah. and like you know. Um, it was literally that stark choice where I grew up in the part of Slough that I grew up in but um, but this is just um, but so but grammar school I noticed that like for some reason the teachers started singling me out and I didn't know why mm. I thought what's going wrong you know what's happening and I didn't and I only realised when it's kind of like the, the, the school was right on this estate and it was the estate I grew up on and I still had mates on that estate yeah. who I, and as soon as they found out I was hanging with these mates in that estate then they they kind of just suddenly closed ranks on me. Right. And that I didn't realise until much later in life that, that there was a class aspect for that. A university as well, you know, all the other kind of like the hippie kids, art college and all this kind of stuff. I became quite aware of it then, this kind mm -hmm. of thing, which is no matter how well-meaning they were, there were definitely aspects of you're not the same as them. Um, but I'd never kind of hung around with people like that until yeah. I went to college. Yeah. I mean, art, well, one thing I love about art is it's, it's shone that light on me. I came from somewhere where if you wore a kind of slightly weird t-shirt, you'd get like kind of <laughs> hounded, hounded by like a, a 47, 12 year olds on BMXs. <laughs> you know, that kind of, the, yeah, the brothers would just send the hordes out, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. What's like, that scene from, Peep, scene from Peep Show where they're all cycling around David Mitchell going, oh, a clean shirt. <laughs> What does that mean, clean shirt? You, clean shirt. <laughs> so if you were slightly out of the ordinary, trust me, yeah, you, yeah. Would just, you would get shit. Um, but just, um, 
but yeah so so there's that thing that seeing that other world actually and mm. <laughs> seeing the world of middle and upper middle class people <laughs> kind of was really really you know really illuminating mm. for me I guess and um, and seeing that there was a mental life that you could have that I was never really encouraged to have by people that I grew up with um, that was something yeah um, I don't know yeah do you know I've, there's an interview with Byron, Vin Byron Vincent did this really interesting talk for Radio 4 uh, Byron Vincent the sort of spoken word performance poet um, who, uh, he did talk about a year and a bit ago about class and I remember him saying at the beginning of it he goes I'm, I'm, I come from a working class background I grew up in a working class area I grew up in an estate I'm, I'm middle class now mm. and that was a really interesting thing to hear because I thought wow if that's true then I'm definitely middle class now yeah you know what I mean I make a living as a poet and lecturer I you know, I live in sort of central-ish London. I suppose that's yeah. the point I'm making. Now working yeah. class is much more of an um, attitude, isn't it? Than yeah. really a reflection on on your bank account, you know? Yeah, and, that's true. And your sort of, um, the it's possibilities you have in your life, you know? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, my, my dad left school at 14 or whatever and mm -hmm. worked as a plumber and ended up in the post office and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. That sort of, that, those stories don't occur anymore that's not the world we live in yeah, anymore yeah. you know that kind of working class mm. um, and I just yeah that's what anyway could yeah. go on talking about it forever but so when you when you did finish working as a gardener or manual labourer and moved yeah. into the world of uh, what was it, sort of writing more full time and teaching what effect did that have on your writing I remember what effect it had on my physique which <laughs> 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 I think I put on about like two stone in yeah, as many yeah. months yeah. Um, I was an arsehole honestly I was just like, like I, I was so full of shit I, I'm still full of shit but it's just like but I kind of it really went to my head mm. really went to my head my ego just my body I think if anything my body just matched what happened to my ego <laughs> when I first kind of got the opportunity that people were paying me to go on tour I didn't think that hey there's one admin that kind of likes my stuff yeah, yeah, thought yeah. I'd be good at writing a 15 minute commission to take on tour mm. and there was a bit of money in it because I was used to not making a lot of money yeah I was like, the amount I get paid here, I can live on this for this long. And if I have to go back to digging holes after yes, that, yeah. fair enough. But, oh, my ego just exploded. And I was doing stupid shit, like, like eating those full Englishes and just drinking, um, drinking like bottles of beer in the afternoon and <laughs> stuff like that. And it was just, and I, I think I had a bit of a mini alcohol, well, I wouldn't say alcoholic, that's a bit, I had a dependency, let's mm. just say, and it really manifested itself. Me turning up, for, I was turning up for gigs drunk. Yeah. and stuff like that not on this particularly on this tour but other gigs and I probably any kind of things that I, I mean if I had, had the brain that, about these things I had now going but at the same time I realised now part of that was to almost like but it was almost like a mini crisis in my life mm. to dramatically go from one lifestyle to another to this very physical working job that I got paid nothing for surrounded by people that have all kinds of shit going on in their lives and this masculinity yeah, yeah. to go into this very liberal world. Of it must poetry. be very unsettling to suddenly be put in a world where all of your natural defences are useless because you're not being you're targeted in the same way at all. Yeah, right? yeah, you're yeah, being yeah. targeted more cerebrally or whatever. You know, it's not you're you, you're not just having to put up with a load of other gardeners yeah. taking, <laughs> taking the piss out of you for not reading the Daily Star. Or whatever, yeah, exactly. You know? like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's suddenly like it's really different, it's really yeah. dramatic. And maybe because I walk in with my kind of like the whole defensive mechanisms that I've got, yeah. you walk into somewhere, like I was saying earlier, feeling nervous of hell but looking like you're the guy that's going to kind of like throw something out of the window <laughs> or something like that. You know? It's like, you know, and it's not that at all. And uh, I remember I really offended everyone in Penzance. I, remember, I, know. <laughs> I did, I did. I said some line, I can't remember what it was, but it's something that kind of like made it look like they weren't struggling in their lives actually in Penzance mm. there's lots of unemployment yeah. and lots of people basically the economy there has gone to sh would have gone to shit at that time mm. and um, seeing this guy from London no, you know, anyone from outside London yeah, also yeah, sees yeah. London as a place where there's no poverty yeah. so seeing someone from London sort of this wide boy come mm. in and like you know make a few little comments um, yeah no I, I swear if I go back there now they'll probably like have a, like a wicker man waiting for me <laughs> but um, <laughs> and I'm definitely never going back to Penzance now but yeah, no, but I felt bad about that afterwards. I felt I got an email from someone quite patiently explaining me why, why I was so offensive. Okay. Yeah, and, and me kind of being banged to rights and you know, just saying sorry to them. But, but me realising I was doing that at a lot of places. Um, 
I guess it's something that me and a few other poets still do sometimes. It's really interesting that like, I sometimes question my own role now when, when I kind of turn up in front of an audience of, well, what do I know, most, most of my gigs are in an audience in front of an audience of liberal middle class people. Yes, yeah. Thank you for coming and paying to watch me slag you off in poetry. You know what I mean? It's just, just I need to have an epiphany about that as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know um, why, am I, why am I slating stuff that makes people feel good about going out and watch that stuff mm. when, when I'm writing stuff that doesn't make them feel that way? Or what do you know? Anyway, so with um, the, I suppose if we talk just briefly about the course you've been teaching or the modules you've been teaching this yeah. year, so what age are the majority of the students on the course? Um, what no, le- what level of uh, course is it? Well, there's a BA I teach, a couple of BAs I taught, and that's sort of first year and second year undergraduate um, with some mature students as well. Um, so, the, so the undergraduates are normally sort of 19, 20, possibly 21, and then the mature students any age over 25, um, and and the sort of and then there's the, the MAs I've been teaching as well, which is sort of different, mm. um, much more, you know, it's, it's just much much more advanced. Um, the BA actually the kids that I teach kids listen to me. Um, <laughs> the, the, the students that I teach for the BA, um, a lot of them are for, a lot of the students here at London Met are from um, black and minority ethnic backgrounds, um, a lot from working class backgrounds. Um, I really enjoy it actually. I really enjoy um, kind of finding a way of having to go. This is why the po- the, the poetry of some Tories like Dryden and Pope mm. are relevant to you. You know what I mean? Like that idea of, I was just talking about economy and long poems, but like, you know, rhyming couplets where a long, complex argument is, 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 is spoken mm. about something very intellectual, but very social, um, that, that whole kind of restoration poetry thing is in a lot of ways really relevant to working class and black and Asian minority ethnic people, anyone who might be, to use a shitty word, disenfranchised or maybe aren't feeling privilege, people have something to talk about, and people have a feeling of a socio-political context. In some ways, what these Tory boys were doing at the advent of coffee houses in London is kind of very similar to this internet, YouTube, social media, this sudden connection of ideas, and this intellectual dialogue. So stuff like that is very rewarding, to mm. kind of take stuff that they might not have been aware of, and they might have just kind of fallen straight into the spoken word model of doing things, but to give them that more of an idea of the history of poetry, and how things that have happened before in English literature by these dead white guys can still be relevant and can still help them. Um, and I mean, are there any areas of knowledge relating to like, thinking around poetry or writing techniques that your students are lacking? Because I wanted to go on to ask if you think if there, could there be any uh, specific changes to the ed- education of you know, before they reach this, this uh, oh, you mean like in school? I think you have to treat it like they've not been taught poetry, yeah. Yeah, you have to treat it like that. Beginning okay. of a BA, even an MA, to be fair, yeah. I, I was thinking MA students they might come from creative writing, they might not have actually studied poetry in an academic sense, they might not have actually read poetry, they might have got in on the strength of their short stories and stuff mm. like that. Um, but you have to start from the beginning, really, um, because. It's kind of like, even though some, we, I know, it's funny because we end up teaching some of the same poets they probably have been taught in the national curriculum. Shakespeare, Keats, Shelley, Byron, um, the war poets and so on. But we teach them under a kind of slightly different context, I guess. We really try to develop an idea of history and the history of ideas alongside um, how poetry is developed. And we do it in a very kind of short amount of time. And... And we get them to kind of, yeah, try all the basics of writing, trying to get them to write an iambic pentameter, to try and get them to write different forms, to get them to think about rhyme. Um, I, I think all of this stuff can only help them. I don't think anything, any of it would ever hinder anyone who was to go into spoken word poetry or whatever, especially rhymes and stuff like that. I mean, performers can always disguise a really dodgy rhyme. But, yeah. but, but you know, they know how to do it. And they know how to, like, disguise an underwritten line with their performance skills. But man, if your writing is tight, you don't have to put that effort in. No. If your writing is tight, then it actually makes the performance job easier for you. So, yeah, I kind of, I, I, yeah, but I do find it. But I, I don't know enough about the national curriculum these days to really. No, that, that wasn't actually the. That wasn't what I meant because that sort of sort of <laughs> cast you as this figure. Yeah. And I didn't mean to sort of, um, um, 
question it did quite like that. But um, if you had more time on the course, are there any particular aspects you'd like to be able to do differently or spend more time on while you're teaching? You know what? Um, I don't. I think you can always have too much time, but I think the most important thing for a lot of poets and a lot of writers is to get out there and have a life. Mm. Give them the tools, but that's just the tools. You know, they need the substance. They need to get that from there. Some of them, to be fair, already have the substance. The mature students, you yes. know, like we've got single mums coming in and stuff, but they've lived loads of yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? We just need to give them the tools, and off they go. Um, the, the work's never done in poetry. I think. I think. From what I have taught, I mean, I teach a poetry and performance module myself, and um, that's when I've kind of done myself. And I think it's about the right length, if you know what I mean. Um, I would just say to them, everything else, I, get, I can give you some theoretical background and stuff. Everything else you need to learn is by just getting out there and performing. And um, do, you, do you like write on the whiteboard this week and like this weekend's homework? Have fun. <laughs> and everyone goes what yeah that's right I, I write, um, I write uh, work like you don't need the money dance like no one's watching and love like you've never been hurt on the, on the whiteboard and they all just look at me no. um, um, actually could you just tell us briefly a bit about the performance module that you were yeah, so it's basically a sort of poetry and performance module where we go very quickly through sort of oral tradition and stuff like that, and then we um, look at different. So the first half of the of the module is based on um, is based on historical developments in poetry and performance. So um, I have one and and sort of socio political developments. So I have like a so I have one about poetry intersections between poetry and comedy where we look at Lenny Bruce and Allen Ginsberg and okay, stuff like that yeah, and, yeah. and we look at their obscenity trials and about the question that's asked by Allen Ginsberg was able to get by on the artistic merit but Lenny Bruce in many ways his work was not that different to mm. beat poetry didn't because it was comedy in that assumption we look at intersections between feminism and spoken word and actually one thing I really like about contemporary spoken word and young people uh, doing spoken word at the moment is intersectionality getting explored and there's and also feminism actually how much feminism has kind of really come to the fore in a really effective way but young people are kind of politicised and talking about things in that sense um, but yeah so anyway we look at all these different historical outlooks intersections between feminism black and minority ethnic poets um, oh my goodness my, my mind is blanking now um, hip-hop and poetry as well um, can rappers be appraised as poets um, and then the second half of the course um, we, we uh, have a look at the idea that uh, we just look at we, we look at things differently so we'll have one one that's more analytical so we look at body language and poetry mm. We look at um, the voice of the poet. We look at um, sort of mixed media and music with poetry. Um, and so, yeah, so the first half is very historical and sort of more about the socio-political aspects. Oh, yeah, and we have a whole slam poetry one as well, looking at the history of slam. And then the second half is more analytical, looking at all the different aspects of what makes a performance. And that's how it's, yeah, okay. it seems to work. Um, as always, and well, whenever we get chatting, we could probably chat for about three hours, but um, I think we're going to wrap up. But we'll end on a poem, I think. Okay, so we'll yeah. Take a further from the poem. Sort please. of a poem. So, this is something I've been working on a little project, my current thing I'm working on, where I've um, had this, uh, where I've, 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 I've done a call out for people who are interested in being my only friend. And I had a little kind of stupid little manifesto type thing of all the requirements. And then I've been writing about the um, not fictional at all, he says, uh, responses I've had from all these different people um, woven in between. So this is, I think there's about four more of these to go before I, I hit the end of it, to tell the truth. But um, I'm kind of halfway, well, more than halfway through at the moment. So I get all these little paragraphs of summarising each person's life who's applying to be my only friend. <laughs> and there's a recurring motif about a guy called Ken, who um, is who seems to who seems to have, uh, among many things, a supernatural power over foxes, um, and who writes his name a lot with exclamation marks. Um, so there's the Ken narrative running through it. But these are so I'm just going to read these two paragraphs which summarise two friendship applications. And there's no if you want to know about Ken, then you're just going to have to read it. But um, so I'll read these two out now. An elderly gentleman who has sworn to live the rest of his life in a turtle shell after being mugged in an inner city underpass. The shell itself is made from a mixture of titanium alloy and a tough, stretchy polymer. 
He is able to walk upright in it, but is also able to slide along the footpath on his belly with the help of retractable wheels. As soon as the local gangs spot him, he quickly tucks in his head and limbs to shut up shop. If they try lifting the shell, they soon find their palms pierced by retractable spikes. They kick the shell and smash it with rocks to no avail. All the while he is already sending images of their faces taken by discreet pinhole cameras to the local police station. Frustrated, they are driven away by a short alarm whistle emitting from within. Inside the shell is a set of straws that feed him warm tea, chicken soup or horlicks from his assorted thermos flasks. He dons his virtual reality goggles and clamps on his earphones to watch some silver screen classics. Some days, children come out and prod the shell with sticks and he waits for the perfect moment to pop his head out and shout, BOO! Other concerned neighbours gently push the shell through the waking streets and park it outside his front door. They are never bothered by spikes or sirens as they do so, knowing that the soul clamped within the shell has not yet lost faith in the kindness of strangers. A woman that has drawn intricate renderings of her vulva on polling cards since she came of age to vote. She spends the last week of the election campaign clamping a mirror between her feet, turning her stool to find optimal lighting conditions and making preparatory sketches. Then, on polling day, she takes the biro in her hand and without the help of any visual aids, drafts the likeness of her vital parts with startling precision. The individual hairs reflect the late afternoon light. New moles pop up in seeming recognition of a change in political climate. The pronounced labial fissure subtly adjusts the sweep of its lineation in recognition of a shifting centre ground. On a night when she's overindulged with cooking sherry, she will confess to her electoral antics to a prudish acquaintance. They will sometimes regale her with a guilt trip about the suffragettes. She always replies that she thinks that they would approve and approve strongly. Thank you very much. Um, actually, before we finish, uh, do you have any blogs or websites you want to mention? I think the easiest thing for me to do, I finally work this out, is if you go on to nilosullivan.co.uk, so N-I-A-L-L-O-S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N.co.uk, there's basically feeds for my Tumblr, uh, my audio boom, my YouTube, SoundCloud, and my blog. Yeah. And so, pretty much everything. My website is kind of a catch-all for all these kind of things that I want people to look at, read, and listen to. And so, and you can follow everything out from there. So, if you just go on my website, then you'll find um, loads of stuff to read and listen to and yeah. watch. And we'll list all the all the things under the podcast anyway in cool. the description. Thanks, Niall. Is there anything else I can say to burn any bridges with anyone else? No, we oh, oh, I should have come with a list of people that yeah. we wanted to upset. Well, you just read them out and just say, and just fuck off. But no, I think that's enough bridges for one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and check out Niall at every Tuesday at the uh, Poetry Cafe for Poetry Unplugged if you have done this before or not done it or just want to watch. Um,